You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabreeconference.com. This episode features a lecture by Joshua Chestnut. Joshua is one of the workers at the Southboro branch of Labrie, and he discusses cultivating a hopeful imagination in a pornified culture. So I'm, uh, I'm personally feeling a little tired and a little full at this point in the weekend. I don't know how other people are, are feeling. And so I want to start with a prayer. Uh, this is a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. It's a prayer of self-dedication. And it, it touches on a number of things that have been spoken about uh, in other, other plenaries or, or workshops. And... Yeah, I think we will talk about some difficult things, some honest things. There'll be a few frank things said. And um, I do want this to be an encouraging or ultimately uh, give you some tools to help think about this big cultural issue. So I'm going to start with this prayer. And again, this is a prayer of self-dedication from the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you. So guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours, completely dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people. Through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So as a way into this lecture... I want to share a story from a podcast, a podcast that is about the unexpected effects of unlimited free porn on the internet. The podcast is called The Butterfly Effect. I do not recommend it. It is not an easy listen. It is not worth your time. But in one of the episodes, the host, John Ronson, a British journalist, interviews a couple named Dan and Rihanna, who live in the San Fernando Valley, and make something called Bespoke porn, which is really custom porn. People pay lots of money to get exactly what they want in their pornography. The lighting, the body type, the words, the plot. And what they talk about is actually an unexpected thing that a lot of people request videos, request porn, that have no nudity and no sexual contact whatsoever. It's unexpected. And some of them, I think it's meant to be humorous in an otherwise uh, heavy podcast. Uh, there's there's one story of a, a woman in a kitchen, fully clothed, growing increasingly frustrated, trying to swat flies. Uh, there's another one where fully clothed women walk into a room, find a stamp collection, make fun of the stamp collection, and then destroy it. So it's unexpected things, and I think they're meant to be humorous. But at this point in the podcast, they tell another story about a requested video that is not meant to be humorous. It takes a very somber turn. Uh, Dan and Rihanna tell a story about getting an email late at night from a man who requests the following video. Uh, A fully clothed woman 
sitting on the floor, cross-legged, looking into the camera, and she says the following thing. She says, you are loved. Things are hard now, but they won't be forever. Suicide is not the answer. So Dan immediately writes back. This is not a normal thing in the bespoke porn industry. He writes back. He's concerned. And he gets no response whatsoever from this person. So even though there's no exchange of money uh, and, and no further correspondence with this man, they go ahead and film the scene and make it as beautiful as they possibly can. As wonderful as they can. And they send it to the guy, hoping maybe he'll get it and receive it. And it'll benefit him in some way. And it's very heavy. The woman who films the scene can't even speak about it without crying. Um, we never hear back from this person who requested the video, uh, but it's hard not to assume the worst. But commenting on this episode of this podcast, Alan Jacobs, who is a professor at Baylor University, very helpful, insightful writer, says this, and it's a longer quote, um, uh, so stick with it, uh, but it's insightful, and it sort of sets, sets the course on where I hope to go for part of our time. Jacob says this, Long ago, we all learned from Freud or Freud's followers to see sexual desire as the most powerful force acting on the human will. And though almost everything Freud taught has been thoroughly discredited, the idea still holds sway. The idea that beneath our multitude of impulses lurks eros, that desire with a thousand masks. And yet, as I reflect on this story, I see that Eros is at least sometimes also a mask. Why might a man suffering as this nameless man was suffering turn for help to people who make pornography? Perhaps because porn is fantasy in the sense of a dream world in which your desires are fulfilled. But at least sometimes what we want is not sex as such, but rather to live out a dream of human connection. A dream of warmth stronger and more comforting than even the warmth of bodies. End of quote. I, uh, in some ways, I, I would like to stop there and just sort of talk about Jacob's insight, his analysis there. I think it's helpful. Uh, and I can't speak for all people in all situations, but from my own research, as well as having really countless conversations, numerous conversations with guests and students at Labrie, my hunch is what's beneath compulsive use of internet porn is not exclusively lust. It's not exclusively eros, this desire that wears a thousand masks, though certainly lust plays a part. The appeal of porn is somewhere else, someplace kind of deeper, hidden under that mask, and so it remains hidden from us. And a way that's been helpful for me to think about this is that porn is often the presenting problem the one we see in our lives. But it is not always or only our primary problem. The problems we see clearly in our own life, unwanted behaviors that we want to change, has roots in places that are often far murkier to us. And to be clear, the presenting problem of compulsive or habitual or addictive porn use is a real problem, both individually and culturally. And, um, uh, one book that highlights this well is a very difficult book, but a helpful book by Gail Dines. It's called Pornland. There's the cover. Uh, again, not an easy read, um, 
but Dines is one of, she's probably the leading anti-porn advocate uh, in the Western world right now. She lives in Boston, she teaches communications at Wheelock College. But in this book, Pornland, she tells the story of how porn became the norm in Western culture. Porn's meteoric rise from the margins to the mainstream. And in the process, pornifying our culture, where the standards, the practices, the aesthetics of porn really infiltrated the mainstream and became part of our life. And as she does this, it's really a story of a rapid decline of any standards of acceptability in porn. It's a story where competition and greed between initially publications, but now websites, um, uh, continue to push the envelope of acceptability in a war where the main tactic was to outraunch the competition. You outraunch the competition, you push the envelope further so you can get more subscribers, or you can get more clicks. Um, and so if you think of pornography today as primarily naked bodies or, or just people having sex, it's a, little, it's a little dated, that's not actually what it is. And so I'm going to read uh, from a, a report, a study on the content of contemporary porn to highlight the fact that porn today is, is exceedingly violent. So this is actually a bit of an older study. It's from 2007, where they looked at the 50 most popular films, porn films, of the year. And what they found is the following. That physical aggression, exclusively towards the female performer, uh, which included spanking, slapping, and gagging, occurred in over 88% of the scenes. While expressions of verbal aggression, calling the woman such names as bitch or slut, were found in 48% of the scenes. The researchers concluded that if you combine both physical and verbal aggression, that nearly 90% of the scenes contained one aggressive act with an average of nearly 12 acts of aggression per scene. And to give you an idea of how large the porn industry is, this is an infograph from one website called Pornhub that gives free porn. This is their 2015 year in review infograph. And I just want to draw your attention to this over about you know, 4, 4 billion, 392 million, whatever hours of porn were watched that year. And the, the purpose of this Neanderthal, this guy watching the computer, is if you take the dominant view of human evolution, the final stage that we're in, uh, has been going on for about 200,000 years. So if you take that 200,000 years and you divide it into hours, and you multiply those hours by two and a half, you still don't have as many hours of porn were streamed from Pornhub in 2015. It's, it's a massive thing. And it, so it's, it's a huge cultural issue, and there's two helpful resources that, that sort of talk about how this is shaping us as a culture. One is outside on our book table, Wired for Intimacy, which is really looking at the neuroscience, uh, how porn affects our brains. Uh, it's on the table. It's written by a Christian man who teaches at uh, Wheaton College. And the other is The Social Cost of Pornography, a collection of papers. This is an interdisciplinary, multi-author book that has sociologists, theologians, philosophers, psychologists, all talking about the way porn is affecting us. And when I've given this talk before or other talks about this, I've focused a lot on sort of the social aspects um, and what this research is telling us. But as I started writing and working on this lecture, it, it kind of took a turn. 
and uh, it changed. And so I, I want to talk about underneath what's going on underneath these huge trends. Men and women profoundly aware of behavior they want to change, but who at times I find to be profoundly inarticulate on why they continue in this unwanted behavior. And I hear all sorts of sort of oversimplified generalizations. Well, I'm a guy. Or I'm really bored. Or I'm just an addict. And I believe a component onto why so many are inarticulate and unable to really understand what keeps drawing them back to this unwanted behavior is shame. Shame is a very powerful thing that keeps us from looking beneath our presenting problems to those more primary problems, whatever is fueling them on or lurking beneath them. And it's worth just taking a moment to differentiate between guilt and shame. Uh, this is something we actually do talk about fairly regularly at agree with students. And I've been really helped by my colleague Dick's book, Beyond Identity, that talks about, talks about this. And so guilt is a failure of morals, uh, a failure to live up to a standard outside of us, God's law, God's way. But shame is a failure of models, not being the type of person we want to be or that we hope to be or want to be. So when we indulge in unwanted sexual behavior, we look at porn, we break God's standards, and we incur guilt. Uh, but we also fail to live into the ideal of the person we want to be. And so we experience shame. And guilt tells us we've done something wrong, which is true. Uh, but shame tells us that we ourselves are wrong. That is not true. Shame is painful and it's humiliating, and so we run from shame. We run from ourselves and we experience. And when we run from shame, instead of confronting its claims about us, we inadvertently legitimate its claims about us, that we are wrong. And so shame unconfronted can keep our more deeper, more primary problems hidden from us, perhaps under the mask of arrows. So while there is a lot of well-intended and even helpful advice that takes aim at behavior modification, dealing with our presenting problem, some manner of lust management has been, I think, the overwhelming response uh, from people within the evangelical camp. And that deals with the presenting problem, but maybe misses out on what's going on beneath our more primary problems. So counselor and minister Jay Stringer, in his helpful book, which is also out on the table, his helpful book, Unwanted, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing, it's a helpful book. It's also a difficult book at times. It, it can be a hard, a hard read. He talks about things that go on, have gone on in his practice, and it's, at times it's very difficult. But he says this, a desire to stop pursuing unwanted sexual behavior will only be as effective as your ability to identify and dismantle the underlying infrastructure that creates your need for it. He's talking about those deeper, hidden, primary problems. And these are the things that I'm interested in helping our students uncover at Labrie as we have these times where we meet together and we talk. What are the roots? So at this point, with some of this in place, I want to say where we're going to go for the rest of our time. We started <clears throat> by just talking about porn, the nature of porn today, presenting primary problems, uh, as well as shame and guilt. 
From here, I want to talk about how did I get here. I want to frame our talk through three questions. And I got these questions from Stringer's book, Unwanted. How did I get here? Which is just thoughts on addiction or compulsive, uh, unwanted sexual behavior. Uh, from here, talk about why do I stay here? And look at five core human dynamics uh, that, that I think are common, as well as we're going to look a little bit at spiritual warfare. And then from there, how might I get out of here? How can we cultivate an imagination that is hopeful for change? So I'm going to start with how <clears throat> did I get here? And there's a lot on human behavior, about compulsive behavior, about addiction in general that is mysterious. A helpful way into the discussion that I found is through a doctor, a Canadian doctor named Gabor Mate, in his large book, but at times very helpful book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. I, I worked at the same nonprofit uh, that, that he worked for, but I was basically like a janitor, and he was, um, he was, he was a medical doctor. Um, but he's a, he's a very helpful person, and he's a fascinating guy. Uh, and he spent a lot of time working in this neighborhood in Vancouver uh, that has an incredibly high percentage of, of drug users, of hardcore drug users. Uh, and so he has a lot of helpful things to say about addiction. And you could, Monte encourages us to, that before we ask why the addiction, we need to ask why is there pain? What is the pain? Monte, who has spent decades working with addicted people in Vancouver's downtown east side, believes that addiction, compulsive behavior, almost always originates in pain, whether felt openly or hidden in the unconscious. He says addictions are actually emotional anesthetics. Uh, Monte goes on to say that all people carry pain with them, and unless we learn to deal with it, unless we learn to process it in some way, we look for something to numb it, to distract us from it, to take it away from us. So whether it's using hard drugs like heroin or crack, like Monte's patients, or the compulsive purchasing of classical CDs, which Monte himself uh, confesses to in the book, he owned thousands and thousands of classical CDs that he didn't even listen to. And his compulsive behavior got so bad that he was at a pregnancy. This woman was delivering, and he knew there was about a 15-minute window where nothing was going to happen. He's one of the leading doctors in all of Vancouver. He's a big deal. And he, he has a 15-minute window, but this new opera has come out. And he's like, I have to get this opera, and I have to get it now. So he leaves and goes to a store around the corner to get the CD. And they don't have the CD. So instead of going back to the delivery, he gets in his car and drives across town to another store where they have that CD, and he ends up buying like five or six other CDs. He misses the birth entirely. Uh, so Mate is someone who's not just sort of talking about addiction as something out there with other people. He sees this as something in his own life, and he, 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 he talks about it quite openly. Uh, and so Mate also does some interesting work with Vietnam, the, the research on Vietnam vets who returned home, uh, many of whom started using heroin, while they were there. And a full 95% of them, upon leaving Vietnam and returning to the US, stopped using with little to no professional help. This sort of casts all sorts of questions on prevailing understandings about addiction being primarily something that is in the substance that gets us. 
Uh, Mate says, emotional isolation, powerlessness, and stress are exactly the conditions that promote the neurobiology of addiction. And while I don't like everything Mate does, this is not a wholesale endorsement of, of his work, he's helpful in two ways, I think. One, he calls us to interrogate our own lives, our own stories, to look at our unwanted behavior in order to understand ourselves more deeply. I find that genuine self-knowledge rarely ever comes from these sweeping generalizations. I'm an addict, I'm a guy, I'm stressed out. Uh, but he calls us to look beneath our presenting problems to see our more primary problems. We often talk with our students about John Calvin's sort of famous start to the Institute. There's two types of knowledge worth having. Knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And Calvin says, I really can't for the life of me figure out which one comes first. Uh, they're sort of implicating knowledges. So Mate calls us to look into our own lives. And then second, he avoids a take on addiction, which places the problem solely in our genes or solely in the substance itself. He makes space for these factors, uh, but he sees that these ways of understanding compulsive behavior tend to downplay or diminish human agency, our dominion, our ability to make decisions and do things. Now there's certainly more to say about how, how we got here or about addiction, but I want to move on and we'll spend a little more time. Why do I stay here? Why do I return to unwanted behavior, especially with pornography? And I want to lay out five common human experiences that I think are often sort of lurking beneath uh, that, are, that are maybe part of the primary problem as opposed to just the presenting problem. And there's lots of other, other things. This is just a slice of the pie. And I want to avoid getting into difficult things like people's traumatic experience or sexual abuse or family dysfunction. Um, and so these are the five. I want to talk about deprivation, futility, dissociation, and then consider lust and anger together. And these can work independently or in tandem with each other. So here's an example of, of them sort of working together. You have a terrible day at work. You mess up on your presentation. Your boss yells at you for something. You're completely misunderstood. You experience futility. You go home and you're frustrated. So you grab a bag of Doritos, you lie on the couch, and you just stream all of Stranger Things Season 2. You watch the whole thing. You've already watched it. You've already watched it, but you watch it again. You're dissociating. You're removing yourself from something. You emerge from this, and it's 10 o'clock at night, and there were all sorts of things you wanted to do with your afternoon and the rest of your day that you didn't do, so you're angry. But before you know it, you're right back on your phone or on your laptop. You're streaming porn. You're looking at porn. There's lust right there. You feel terrible about this the next day. And maybe a friend or a colleague says, hey, let's go do this, this fun thing somewhere. And somehow you say no, and you think saying no atones for the bad behavior you did the day before. You deprive yourself. So these things can all work uh, independently or together, and we'll take a few moments just looking at each. So I want to start with deprivation. It's important to say that ignoring our needs Depriving ourselves is not necessarily noble or virtuous. In fact, it's often not. And I think it can be spiritually dangerous if our self-denial is not led by love of God and love of neighbor. Uh, what I mean by this is, at least in part, self-deprivation is just 
often one side of a turbulent seesaw. I deny myself something, then I deprive myself of something, therefore I'm entitled to something else. Uh, deprivation is often the doorway to entitlement. These are two sides of the same coin. We can move through our days feeling overworked, underappreciated, and feel as though we're entitled to certain things because we deny ourselves something else. It's almost as if there's this unarticulated but powerful moral calculus at work in the universe. And we deny ourselves something, therefore we're entitled to something else. I said no to the extra slice of cake at my daughter's birthday party, therefore I can have another beer tonight. This is how we sort of can justify our own behavior. There's clearly more to say about deprivation, but I want to move on to futility. This is an experience of lacking purpose, of spinning your wheels. You work hard to get the promotion, but someone else gets it. You save and you budget so that you can pay off your student loans, but they, they don't go anywhere. They're just there. The language of Genesis 3 is what comes to mind. There are thorns and thistles to the ground. And I think Horn's appeal, in part, uh, is these thorns and thistles. Because our experience of futility disappears when we're streaming porn. In porn, there's no risk. There's no imagination required of us. All we have to do is consume. Porn offers us, if momentarily, a world where there's no futility. No relational maturity is required to navigate these sorts of relationships. And you get a risk-free conquest in some ways. There's more to say about futility, but I do think if you want to fight porn use... It's not about fighting desire, but it's, it's fighting to discover meaning and purpose. Um, so from here we'll move to dissociation, and dissociation uh, can be, um, there can be dissociative responses to, to trauma, um, which is not what I'm talking about here uh, in, in that sense. Um, dissociation is a psychological term when we disengage from ourselves from our bodies, from our surrounding, and we get pulled into a world of distraction where things are easier for us. We escape to a fantasy where we're in control, where we're wanted, and where pleasure is owed us. Um, but complex problems happen when we sexualize our dissociation, in part because porn is not the type of thing that you walk away from unchanged. That book that I had up here before, Wired for Intimacy, lays this out in incredible detail. Uh, but uh, porn shapes us, and we're learning things from it. Mary Ann Leiden, who's a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, says porn is actually the ideal learning context. You learn from porn. It shapes you deeply. Because we always learn better with images over words. Words sound like opinions. Images seem objective and real. This is good news for porn. This is bad news for me, just giving you lots of words right now. But she says we learn better still, images over words, but also we learn better when we're aroused. And porn is arousing. She says we learn better still when uh, this behavior is reinforced. And an orgasm is, very, is a very powerful reinforcement. She says we actually learn best still images over words when we're aroused, when it's reinforced, but also when we see others modeling this behavior getting rewarded. 
which is what happens in pornography. So porn is something that we can dissociate with, but it's shaping us on ways we're often not aware. We're learning from porn. It creates a greater dissatisfaction with our present reality, though, when our reality comes rushing back in. There's more to say, too, about dissociation, but I want to move on to lust, lust and anger, and consider these two uh, together. And uh, Stringer, Jay Stringer, in his book, Unwanted, he did a tremendous amount of clinical research, meeting with uh, hundreds of people as well as surveying thousands of people about unwanted sexual behavior, especially pornography. And he found that the most common sexual fantasies of his male respondents was a desire for a man to have power over a woman. Uh, Interestingly enough, his research also found that most of these men who wanted this felt powerless in their day-in, day-out lives. They had high levels of shame and futility, and some came from domineering and very strict homes, things that can eat away at our sense of agency, our purpose in the world. We feel powerless, and porn offers us some sort of fantasy of power. And so Stringer found that these men who fantasized about having power over women in porn, again, found it arousing in large part because it gave them something, even if it was small and artificial, something uh, that they wanted, that they perceived was absent from their own lives, agency and power. And so lust gives us the opportunity to escape pain, eroticized anger and porn. And remember what we said before, porn is very violent and angry. Uh, It's not just naked people having sex anymore. But eroticized anger in porn is a demand that someone else be used to exact revenge for the pain and discomfort I feel in my own life. All too often, if we don't learn to marvel at beauty, we learn to hate it, and we twist it, and we want to control it. And these are some difficult words that I'm about to say that come from a veteran porn star and and director and actor, a guy named Bill Margold, who recently passed away. I'm just warning you, I'm just going to read what he says. It's It's not nice, but we see this dynamic of lust and anger at play in his words. He says this, I'd like to really show what I believe men want to see, violence against women. I firmly believe that we serve a purpose by showing that. The most violent we get is the cum shot in the face. Men get off behind that, get off behind that, because they get even with the women they can't have in real life. Uh, It's a brutal thing to say um, from the mouth of someone in the industry for a while. But it touches on something uh, that uh, is a comment that is often made by a religious teacher who I generally find very unhelpful and distrustful, a guy named Richard Rohr. Uh, So don't take this as a commendation of his work entirely, but he says this, I think it's very helpful. If you do not transform your pain, you will always transmit it. Always someone else has to suffer because I don't know how to suffer. That is often what it comes down to. So lust and this unrighteous anger can be two peas in a pod. And if we want to understand lust, I think we also need to understand anger and how anger can fuel further lust and how these can arise out of lives where people feel powerless. I feel as though they have no agency. We lust for any number of things, for sex, for 
food, for, for friends, for all sorts of things. But if we don't get what we want, our hearts can fill with anger. Uh, and we demand to have them met. <coughs> These last few things, I think, move on a spectrum. Futility can deform into resignation. Lust can deform into perversion. Um, and anger can deform into degradation. And as we see, just remember again, the nature of porn today, how violent it is. We see these things already at play. But the more I speak with people uh, about porn, a lot of young men in particular, uh, the more convinced I am that psychological and sociological explanations are not enough. Uh, they don't tell the whole story as important as they are. And it's worth saying that we have an enemy. You have an enemy. The devil hates sex. The devil hates human flourishing. And the devil hates you. The devil loves porn, though, and loves self-rejection. And so I don't have a thoroughly worked out theology or understanding of spiritual warfare. I want to speak about two components of it that I see at play in the lives of people that I'm talking to about these things. I'm going to call them the where and the how of spiritual warfare. So first, the where. The where of spiritual warfare. And I've been helped here by my favorite Southern Baptist, a guy named Russell Moore. I don't know if people are familiar with him. And uh, he has a book on the family called The Storm Toss Family, which is very helpful. But Moore comments that throughout the scriptures there are certain aspects of the created order to which some extent offer us a picture of the nature of God. He says there are pictures of the gospel that God has embedded within to the created world. These are things like the family. These are things like the Sabbath or Christian community or human people themselves, the person themselves. And of course, human sexuality, the way Paul talks about it in Ephesians or the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, these are things that somehow show us something of the nature of God. And so Moore writes that if the scriptures are correct, then there are invisible and hostile powers afoot in the cosmos. And these powers rage against any and every picture of the gospel, wherever it is found, all of these places, because the gospel is a sign of the end of their reign, that their heads will be crushed. So this is the where, I think, of spiritual warfare. These places in the created order which to some extent exhibit the gospel, show us something of the nature of God. These are our targets. So of course sexuality and, and our own understanding of ourselves are going to be targets of our enemy. And this brings us to the second part, the how of spiritual warfare. And here I've been helped by an Australian pastor named Mark Sayers. Is a podcast with another pastor from Portland called This Cultural Moment. I found it very helpful. I, I highly recommend it. But Sayers points out that how we conceive of warfare in general often sets the tone for how we think about spiritual warfare. So if we think about warfare as tanks and bombs and guns uh, and grand military things. He calls this hard power. Uh, that's going to set the way we think about spiritual warfare. But warfare is changing to something called soft power. This is through digital media. So even if you can't control the outcome of a battle, you can control the narrative. You can tell a story. 
And so Sayers gives quite a powerful example of this. A campaign of disinformation, where you're not strong enough to win the battle, but you can spread chaos through lies, through things that are untrue. He tells a story about two Facebook groups in the same place in Texas. One is an anti-Sharia law group, and the other is a pro-Muslim American, pro-Muslim rights group. And these two Facebook groups have on the ground lots of flesh and blood members in the same town in Texas. And they hold rallies on the same day in the same park. And as you would imagine, chaos, chaos ensues. And so figuring out how this ever happened, how this riot occurred, they find these Facebook, Facebook groups and they trace the Facebook groups back to URLs that aren't in Texas, but are actually somewhere in the Balkans. These are fictitious groups that were made up just to create chaos, just a campaign of disinformation that leads people astray. It's a crazy story. But it shows the power of lies. Lies can be very powerful. One of the places where Jesus speaks most directly about the devil, about our enemy, is John 8. He's talking to religious leaders, and he's talking about the devil's intentions. He says the devil's intentions are to murder, to steal, and to kill. And how does he go about doing this? He does this through lies. Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. The origin point of all lies is the devil. And Jesus says when the devil speaks, he lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. Now this is not how we often conceive of spiritual warfare. I tend to think of things like disease, demon possession, earthquakes, parking tickets, all those sorts of terrible things. And I'm not denying that those are real or could be means by which the devil gets us. But in this place where Jesus is talking about the devil and the devil's strategy, he lays out lies. The devil is trying to spread a campaign of disinformation. So part then of spiritual warfare is a fight to believe the truth over lies. But what does porn have to do with lies and with spiritual warfare? Well, it's most likely apparent that part of the devil's campaign of disinformation through porn perpetuates lies about the nature of sex. I think that's fairly apparent. What's less apparent, but I think is perhaps even more sinister, are the lies that are perpetuated about the porn users themselves. There is an inevitable and I think natural organic link between compulsive porn use and self-hatred or self-rejection. It's important to understand uh, because this sort of unwanted behavior, compulsive porn use, makes claims on us as people. And they are claims that lead to despair and shut off hope. And they often are on a deep register, not just in our conscious minds, but in our guts, in our imaginations. So with sort of this in place, I want to move to how do I get out of here? And there are all sorts of of practical things we could talk about. There's tons of great resources out here, and some of them are fairly obvious or, or, or common. Things like accountability, things like seeing a counselor, finding good work, moving out of your parents' basement, practices like mortifying our flesh that kind of fall under that classic category. But I think I, I want to speak about something that needs to be in place underneath all of those practical things. 
uh, if they're going to help people get out of porn use. Cultivating an imagination that allows for hope, that allows for change, that counters some of those lies of self-hate. So you might hear imagination, and you've you've heard it from, at least from Dick, if you were at yesterday's start, but imagination is not pretending, it is not made up, it is not the sort of things we tell kids to use when we don't want to explain something to them. Our imaginations are a faculty by which we know things, by which we make connections between things which might not be readily apparent in the moment. It's how we comprehend interpret and organize our reality. So I want to give an example of imagination that I'm borrowing from a great theologian named Kevin Van Hooser. You should go out and buy all his books. Um, But an imagination, or an example of an imagination at work. So he says this, two medieval stonemasons are hard at work chiseling away at blocks. When asked what they're doing, the first says, I am cutting this stone into a perfect square with this hammer and this chisel. I'm placing it over there. You ask the second stonemason, though, and he says, I am building a cathedral. Now, strictly speaking, both of them are correct, but one is understanding the nature of their work, the nature of the hammer and the chisel and the time spent, and what you're doing to the rock. It's serving a purpose. This is our imagination at work. It's not just knowing facts, but making connections, and it's knowledge that's often known in the gut, in our hearts, not just in our head. But repeated, compulsive giving in to porn destroys the way that so many people, so many porn users, not just see their lives, but how they understand the significance of their lives and their own role in it, how they imagine their lives, how they understand and make those sorts of connections. And it might be natural for us to compartmentalize the parts of us which porn affects Maybe it affects our, our purity, or if you've read some of the neuroscience, it affects different neural pathways in your brain. But porn, like all sin, is no respecter of boundaries. Uh, it's part of the power of lies. It affects all different parts of us. And so one of the ways of considering how porn kind of gets into our imaginations and how we understand ourselves would be considering permissive thoughts. These are the thoughts which run through our heads and justify unwanted behavior before we do it. And they can run on a spectrum. They can start sort of simply as, look, it's not that big of a deal. Maybe they move to something like, it has been a long day, to things like, I will never do this again. This is the last time, starting tomorrow, I am done. Uh, And they can move to darker places. Not just justifying behavior, but beginning to make claims on us as people. I actually can't get over this. I am too weak. I'm just a failure. And if you take one of those darker, permissive thoughts, I can't get over this, and consider what effect that line of thinking would have when it plays in someone's head day after day, year after year, It not only becomes something like a self-fulfilling prophecy, it leads to deep self-hate and self-rejection. I can't get over this becomes I'll never get over this, which becomes this is just who I am. 
And it's easy to see how the permissive thought has gotten darker, but it also claims to not only know future behavior, it claims to know something about us as people. This is who I am. I am just a failure. I am a piece of trash. I don't know how many people have told me that they see themselves as just a piece of trash. And we follow it back, we follow these permissive thoughts, and they're beginning to claim things about us as people. But what if these permissive thoughts are wrong about us? What if they don't just know us as well as they claim to know us? What if they're just bully thoughts? My wife and I teach fourth grade Sunday school. Uh, we used to teach third grade, but everyone graduated. Uh, fourth, we're going to keep moving up with them. And we're trying to encourage them to instill the practice of not just listening to themselves, but talking back to themselves. And talking back to themselves with the words of Scripture. So we have them memorize a verse every couple of weeks. It's part of the curriculum. And I need to confess, we give them candy when they recite it perfectly, which I know is a problem. Um, but we also tell them the reality about bully thoughts. Uh, this is a term I got from my colleague, Nikayla. And these are self-rejecting thoughts which kids begin to feel as they begin to compare themselves to other kids, which happens in these elementary years. I'm no good because I'm not as good as a cello as that guy. Or I'm no good because I can't run as fast as that other kid. Running fast is a big deal in fourth grade. <laughs> we tell them that bully thoughts are part of life. But like actual bullies, they don't need to be trusted. They're not trustworthy thoughts. And they don't have to get the last word. And this is why we use the words of Scripture. We memorize the words of Scripture so we have something to speak back to ourselves. Something to shape our imaginations. One of my favorite biblical scholars says the task of biblical imagery is to purge and refurbish the imagination. And that's what we're trying to do and allow the, the possibility of change to speak back to these permissive thoughts that have just become bully thoughts. And so there's two places in scripture in particular that I encourage our guests and our students to dwell. And this is where I want to end because I think these are places that give us hope these are places that can go deep into our guts and our imagination. The first scripture comes from 1 John 3.20. And John writes, Whenever our hearts condemn us, which sounds a lot like these permissive thoughts, which sounds a lot like these bully thoughts, that make claims on us as people. It says, Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. That is bigger than our hearts. And John says this, and he connects it not to just the fact that God is kind and forgiving and gracious, which God is. But he says God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Which means God knows more about you than your permissive thought does. God knows more about you than your bully thought does. And the other place that I, have to, that I think is helpful to soak in, to get into our imaginations, is Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism. Why on earth was Jesus baptized? It is a fascinating theological question that I'm sure has produced massive books and all sorts of tomes, because if there was one person that didn't need to be baptized, arguably, it was Jesus. Yet he did this to fulfill all righteousness. 
I think part of that is he wants to be associated with sinful humanity. Jesus is fully God and fully human. And in his baptism, he wants to associate with us. He doesn't need to, but he does. He wants to be with us. And when he does, this amazing thing happens. The whole Trinity shows up in one place. This is in, this is in the Synoptic Gospels. You should read it and meditate on it. But Jesus is standing in the, in the banks of the Jordan, and the heavens open, and the Spirit descends, and the voice of the Father says, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And for those who are in Christ, this is what God speaks to us. This is our identity. And if we go all the way back to the beginning of this lecture, we talked about that podcast. We talked about what that, or I talked about, what this nameless suffering man looked for from this bespoke poem. And the words were, you are loved. The words he was looking for from porn are the words we receive from our Father. Um, we've covered a lot of ground. We've gone all over the place. Uh, and so just, I'll recap it, and then we'll spend however much time we have left <coughs> talking. But compulsive porn use is often a presenting problem, but it's not our primary one. Our primary problems are deeper within us and are often harder to see. They're often hiding underneath shame, which is distinct from guilt. And we looked at some of these possible primary problems, human dynamics that we all face, like deprivation, futility, dissociation, lust, and anger. But it's also important to remember that we have an enemy who hates us, who hates sex and loves porn and loves self-hate. Right? And he spreads lies through porn, this campaign of disinformation that tells us untruths about sex, but also untruths about us. And so we need to do the work of cultivating an imagination that allows for hope, that allows for change. And part of how we do that, it gives us something to speak back to those permissive thoughts, or those bully thoughts. Part of what we do there is, is take the words of scripture and speak them to ourselves, not just listen to ourselves. So I've talked for a while, and I know this talk ended up being different than the description I gave about a year ago. Um, so if you are curious to hear more uh, about, well, actually, you know, let's just open it up. Let's open it up for discussion. Gone all over the place. I'd love to also. I don't know many people's names, so if I don't know your name, just tell me your name. I'd love to. Yeah. Hey, I'm Kevin. Uh, first of all, thank you for being bold in this conversation. I think that. It's been refreshing to see maybe over the last five years that the church isn't as scared of this topic yeah. as it was before. Uh, and I, I love what you addressed. I've got three sons and three daughters. Yeah. Um, and I know that I have to talk, we have to talk with sons and daughters yeah. about this. They see. They drive down I-24 and they see a light was stuck inside with a girl who has half her clothes on, less than half her clothes on. You know, it's everywhere. And they hear the word. They don't know what it is necessarily. But you don't want them looking it up to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, and maybe ladies can help me out too, but I know, especially ones who have grown up in the foreign culture, which is different than when I grew up because it was a lot more work to find something. Yeah. So, any thoughts on what ages, like, 
Because if you say stuff too early, you can just unintentionally introduce your kids to things. Like it's yeah. I love the game. I go from seven years old to twenty years old. So yeah. I'm all over. Yeah. So I got a four and a half year old and yeah. a nine year old. Yeah. And um, I don't have all the answers on this, but I, I in part because I haven't lived long enough. I do think if we don't want to talk to our kids about sex, the internet is happy to right. and, and will. And one gift of the liturgical calendar that was unexpected for me was going to a Lessons and Carol service with my five-year-old son and the prophecy from Isaiah, the virgin shall be with child. And Jacob was like, hey, what's a virgin? <laughs> I was like, um, we'll talk about this after. Um, and is it so, after yet? What's that? <laughs> it is, yeah. So the next, the next day we talked and... You know, I'm a, I, I believe it's incredibly important to not use slang with your kids, to speak honestly and almost clinically uh, and say, you know, sex is, involves the penis and the vagina. And like, just name, like saying all of the things. I, I explained it to him and I said, do you have any other questions? And he thought for a second and asked me a question about... Uh, Spider-Man shoots his uh, <laughs> thing, like, does it stick to all surfaces? <laughs> but I, I do think, I do, and we've, we've had actually, we've had two more sex talks since then, um, and he's not in. But I do think, like, the days of, like, the talk are done. I think it's, like, multiple talks, uh, and... For me, I want to instill, I want him to know he can come with, come to me with any question he has, and I want him to know things aren't off limits. Um, so uh, so we, we, we have kind of open discussion about some things with him. My daughter's four and a half. We haven't talked to her about sex. We've definitely talked to her about her privates. And that no one touches her privates, and if anyone touches her privates, she tells it, and, and, and that sort of thing. We have a couple books. There's a great book by Justin Holcomb, Lindsay Holcomb, called God Made All of Me, which is for small kids, and it's just talking about uh, the dignity of their body and the importance of, of keeping it to them. Um, but I, I think open and honest conversation, and also hopefully having your kids having. Um, I want, I'm working to have in place a network of friends who will speak to my kids when my kids won't listen to me. Uh, so my peers as well. Um, and, you know, and they, they know that I can also speak, speak to their children uh, as well. I, I, but I don't, I don't know. I just think having as many conversations and judging from, from kid to kid uh, is is important, but I do think that like shame aspect comes in comes in pretty quick, and um, kids feel there's certain things they can't talk about, and yeah, that I think especially in a in a world with the internet that can lead to all sorts of crazy things. But I, have you had any experience that's been helpful, or do you have any thoughts or? Anything I mean, that's one of the reasons why I asked the question. I mean, I, yeah. I, I literally. I've got teenage boys, younger boys, teenage girls, younger boys, I have a 20-year-old son, and you know, we definitely realized for us that having the, a, the first talk before your kids at puberty is really good because there's nothing real 
exciting about it. Yeah. Right? Like when you're doing it with a five-year-old, which yep. is a practical piece of information. Yeah. Um, but you know, for me, with like my daughters, you know, they hear it, they know what it is, they may not be tempted to go look at what it is like a son might go look at it. But I, you know, one of the things I was, uh, was really interested in seeing is there's a lot of ladies in this room because this is a, a critical issue that impacts men in women. And so that's, you know, that's not something I've, I've thought about it. But it really popped for me to see young women in this room and having teenage daughters and a younger daughter go, oh, I don't have to get what's my daughter's mind. And I'm, I know my wife's talked to her some about it. Yeah. My wife's not very shy about talking about anything. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, but even the role that a dad has in terms of talking to his daughter's sport is that, like, have you two years? Yeah, um, I have to think that just briefly after you know I But in terms of definitely along the lines of what you're saying, it's not just one talk, it's many talks. As young as you're talking about it, be very just um, information about it. You're very accurate on the point of if you don't, they will learn it from every other choice of Like this is internet, school, other kids. Um, and honestly, my parents. In some ways, did a really good job of, um, we did have, like, it was about 12, 13, which probably, honestly, I would say that's probably late uh, today. Um, when I was growing up, we were fairly isolated from a lot of things, and we weren't actually in the U.S. either. Um, being, working in the school system as well, would say it's probably much, much earlier. And I think there's a very valid point of, like, well before puberty, just because it's less less interesting and less complicated at that point, yep. and then it gets more complicated. <laughs> and so if you have the baseline to work from, I think it's a lot better. Um, it's definitely both male and female issue. It's not um, exclusive to one or the other. It's very pervasive. Um, I would say I did have my, primarily it was my mom who would be, she, we, we actually went away for a whole fun weekend Yes, there's going to be these lectures. There's a Dr. Dawson's series that was actually, it's outdated probably now, but I honestly, I listened to it again later, like as like a teenager. And I was like, it's still helpful. Um, because it covers not just that, but just self esteem, and you're going to be more aware of your peer relationships and just communication and confidence and um, a lot more. And so we did that as like a weekend away. Um, and it was, <laughs> I was in a big family. It was a big deal to get one-on-one time with the parent. We went to a amusement park afterwards. Pizza. Like the whole nine yards, it, was, it became a positive, like this is a growing up moment in a very safe space. But in that context, my mom was like, this is, it doesn't end here. If you, if you ever want to talk about this, let me know. We'll be happy to talk about it with you. It's important that she stop things for, um, and yes, I'm happy to, you know, like, this is not heavy. Um, love, though, your comment of, there will come a time where probably you're not going to be the person that your kids think of enough to you. Mm-hmm. And I love that, like, creativity around literally, like, thinking about that ahead of time, are there friends of mine? <laughs> we've, we've, already had, we've already had a conversation with, with friends about, like, not saying like, hey, would you have a sex talk with our kids? <laughs> we, we don't want to, but like we we've hit we've hit certain milestones, and we want we've tried to be deliberate 
and marking those. So some of those folks go to our church. Uh, not all of them do. <clears throat> but at the end of uh, at the end of third or the middle of third grade, our church, for some reason, in its milestones program, gives kids a Bible. They do some things and they get they get their own Bible. And we said to these friends, can you write a one-page note to our son why you what you get out of the Bible, why you read the Bible, whatever. It, it, there's no as long as you encourage to read the Bible, there's no wrong way. Like even beginning now to sort of have um, things in place for serious conversations with trusted adults, and it's a small it's a small group of adults, but where they can have honest conversation about their doubts and their struggles. And, I mean, we have those kids ask kids just want to know. They have so many questions and. Um, I think letting them know it's great to ask questions. That's that's part of being a kid. It's part of growing up. And I'll just say too, statistically, it's like the average age of exposure is nine to internet porn. And so I think you know a kid is going to type in boob or sex on Google. And Gail Dines in her book uh, actually does this. She types in I forget what she types in exactly. And in this book, um, oops, wait. Yeah, that one. She types in some word, and in 15 clicks, she tells you in graphic detail what you can see with no credit card, with no uh, like age restriction things. And it's shocking because kids aren't looking for kind of like violent, extreme. They're just curious, and it's a very confusing thing. And there's this toxic stew that's going on inside of them. They're aroused. But disturbed, they're confused, and so like when that—that's where it's like I don't—I don't want that to be my kids. Not first, second, third. I don't want them to have that. I can't ultimately keep them from that. But um, trying to have things in place where they have a different understanding of, of the goodness of sex, the dignity of sex, and the, and the, the power of sex and human sexuality. So yeah. Um, when our son was um, in high school, he's 31 now, so when he was in high school, he went to a small uh, private school, high school, and the school administrator wanted parents to sign um, that they're going to teach all the students about oral sex, and the reason is because one of the girls who performed all the oral sex to all the boys in the school killed herself. Yeah, that is, that's heartbreaking, and that's... But this is, I think this is the time of Bill Clinton. Okay, um, and you know, this is everywhere. It's in news, TV all the time. I mean, I, I, to me, personally, it's a TV. Because when, when the kids are young, they see TV. I mean, even the commercials right now, it's very embarrassing. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, online culture is hard, because, I mean, there's lots of... Lots of stories uh, that I know of of young boys pressuring girls to do these sorts of things or other things, but now they videotape it uh, and they, they put it online. And once it's online, it, it has a life of its like you can't, it doesn't go away. Uh, like it, it, it's a shame that it's always out there uh, in, in some way, there's no control over it. So it's, yeah, yeah no, I. Not exactly sure how to respond to all of that, but it is a 
I think, I think to me this is time, the parents are, you know, time for I think it's time for us to really cry out and pray. Time yeah. for our children, for all the children. Yep. This is a time to just wail and cry out and, you know, knock on the doors of heaven and cry. Yeah. I, I, yeah, and we, we, we sometimes use this language uh, of, of co-belligerence in, in South Fertile, uh, where, like, so like Gail Dines is not a Christian at all, but she's an anti-porn advocate. And I'm happy to like work with anyone, she disagrees with me on all sorts of things, but we would agree that porn is a public health crisis. Uh, it, it, is, it is really destroying a generation on on. There's this huge experiment going on with young people. This this podcast, the Butterfly Effect, is talking about this is an experiment. Free, unlimited porn. What are the consequences of this? And so trying to work with anybody who's willing to raise awareness, even if we disagree on any other number of things. But yeah, I think I think you're right. Someone else? Yeah. She hoped you were. And I'm going to tell you, the way you're talking to your five-year-old now, I don't think he's ever not going to be in I have two daughters and two sons, and for some reason they feel more comfortable with me, my son. And I've heard, you know, you have to keep a straight face. And I'm like, you're not shocked. But um, my older son did exactly what you said. He typed in the name of a, a famous outdoor store. Yeah. And this guy... Going through, I wrote all those things down, go through it. 
my husband's old athlete die hard. You know, my husband's favorite question to my children is, did you run today? Mm-hmm. You know, did you ride? Did you swim? And we had a guy on the street that talked to me early on when he was raising his little boys. He exhausted them every single day. And, you know, Phil Knight, who's um, Nike, I don't agree with everything that he does, but he said everybody ought to run a mile a day. And we make our boys do cardio every single day. Exhaust themselves. And it seems to help strengthen that part of the capacity. So there are things that we can do to feel healthy. Sometimes we hear that the battle is not lost. This is a somewhat dated example, but I was running a service learning program in a large middle high school and taking my students to elementary school to mentor children. And I was making my rounds one day and I saw two boys who were in the fourth grade and I think you're 10 years old or so in the fourth grade. And one of them was saying to the other, yeah, it's got to be NASA.com or WhiteHouse.com. Don't put in, you know, NASA.gov where you'd go to Cape Canaveral or at that time you'd see Michelle Obama giving the uh, tour, the grand tour of the White House. Those were hardcore porn sites I found. And my punchline is that the enemy had bought those website names, of course, knowing it would ensnare yeah. children. Yeah, I forget what that term, I forget what the term is called, but there are websites that are sort of like, like Bob's Restaurant, but the way I spelled Southboro before uh, on, the, on the thing, it's like one letter off, and it just, it links you, it sends you right to, I forget what they call that. Um, what is it? Is it spooky? It might be. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, it's not an uncommon phenomenon. Yeah. The, uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned disinformation and the enemy is an expert. And uh, I, I, I read a book entitled Disinformation. It's a former head of Romanian intelligence who was put in place by the KGB and he defected to the West. And he told some secrets about the KGB and the way they operated. And, and all the spy movies of the Cold War era are all about covert activities and stealing information. And they really didn't do much to figure out what we were doing. They spent far more time just lying about what we were doing and telling the world what the Americans were up to, telling the world what, what others are up to. And I think so much of, of our enemy's activity also is just spreading lies Rather than, that's the best way to subvert the truth. Mm-hmm. And the best way to combat that is to loudly proclaim the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm inclined to say, what do you do? You, how do you talk to your daughters? You look them in the eye and tell them you love them. And, and you're beautiful. And you are enough. And that may be naive of me, but can't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Start. I mean, I'm I'm not an experienced parent. I'm nine years in, but so much of it to me is is really as as my son, especially years older, is like building building trust with him. That like he knows that like part of what the home is is to prepare him for the the rest of his life, and, and 
I want to help him become the person uh, that, that he, he can be. And so, like, he, he's got to trust me on those things. And that's hard because I want to be, I just want him to already be the person I want him to be. But he's his own person. And it's just, parenting is not easy, but I think you're, you're, you're correct in wanting, like, that is a place to start, at least speaking truth and Kids lives, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to ask from the perspective as a leader of the breed, speaking uh, to individuals about this. It seems like, I think growing up in a youth group, some of the, the things that were told to me as a deterrent were not always helpful, even though they were gospel based. Yeah, yeah. Like, for instance, like, uh, you know, don't, not, not, even, you know, not even as far as porn, even just lust movies, whatever. You know, Jesus died for you. You know, Jesus died for you. And it, it, it was kind of like, it wasn't a Jesus died for you, you are valuable, so don't do this. It was like Jesus died for you, uh, kind of a guilt, so why in the world would you ever sin? You know, kind of that, that kind of thing. But it seems to me like there's all kinds of, besides just not talking about it, uh, there's all kinds of unhelpful motivations religious communities and churches can give. I didn't know if there were some of those that you had heard that... Um, they do more damage than good. One, ones that are bad or ones that are unhelpful, unhelpful, and uh, unhelpful. Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard similar things like that. I think what what doesn't often motivate people is that is is the the discussion is isolated to like you and your purity or you and your your spirituality. I think it's uh, I think porn and sexuality affect our spirituality. Um, but starting there, I think especially with um, whatever you would call it, iGen or whatever, it, to me seems like this is probably the ninth or tenth lecture, different lecture I've given on porn, and I've really hesitated to talk about spiritual things. I've wanted to look at sort of sociological research, neurological research. I think those are helpful ways. I didn't use those much today, but those are helpful ways in the door. Um, I think that they make sense. I think young people today, I know this isn't answering your question directly, um, but young people today, or younger people today, uh, find plausibility or believability, like science is what they trust, and personal stories is what they trust. And through the neurological research and the sociological research, you don't just need to say, like, oh, it's wrong, because I think so much of what the church has said is, it's wrong, don't do it. But, like, People have not actually already owned that the whole moral vision, especially teenagers, emerging adults, that says it's wrong. And they're, they're still navigating that. They're trying to figure it out. They're told it's wrong. And that, I think, just doesn't have the power um, by itself to help people. But I think there's some of this other research. You know, in the same way I would tell you, you shouldn't smoke because it's going to kill you. It's going to give you cancer. I would never say, don't smoke because it's wrong. Um, doesn't mean anything. But like, there's some of this other research. You can say like, look, you shouldn't do this because I mean, I wouldn't say it's going to kill you, but it's going to mess you up. Like, it leads actually, statistically, it leads to like less sex and bad sex. Um, and you know, you don't want to just make it utilitarian. Like, oh, if you want the best sex ever, don't look at porn. Like, I'm not promising anyone good sex ever, but like. Uh, you do want to say, look, the research points that this actually is leading you, le- leading you to misery. Like, it's not just that it's wrong, it's bad for you. Um, and that's coming at it from what appears to be more neutral ground of sociology, um, 
and, and sort of neuroscience. And I think that has power. And then also people's individual stories. There's a, an organization called Fight the New Drug that has some interesting stuff online. They do a lot of personal stories, both from people in the industry uh, who, you know, the average life of a, well, the average working career of a, of a woman in the adult industry is like 18 months. Uh, and and they, they quit not because they've made enough money, they can retire, or, or whatever, they quit because their body is destroyed. Like, they can't physically handle what's going on. And taking some of that, I don't know, you see the reality of it in a, in, in a different way. And I think there's wonderful concerns for, for justice uh, and sort of a connection to a wider web of injustice that the rising generation has. And if you can say, it is not hard to sort of make connections between human trafficking and what you're doing in your parents' basement. Like, it's not very hard. And I think when you start bringing those things to light and stop isolating it as just you, just your purity, just like, if you, but you see it's connected to this network of sin and evil and just whatever the opposite of human flourishing is. Giving it a, a bigger context. I think people, I think young people respond to that and it helps form an appetite for something else and disgust for, like if you can just have I think, you know porn be an unattractive thing on that gut level you're just repulsed by it like that is, it's a huge <laughs> a huge victory but it, I don't think it's impossible yeah. um, This is kind of tangential to everything that's been said here but you just kind of prompted it. Um, I think one of the biggest problems is not that no one is talking about pornography and sexual problems, but that, at least in my generation, there was no vision for the beauty of healthy sexuality. It was always, here's bad sexuality, and then in the best churches, it was like, okay, sex and marriage is good, that's great, but we're not going to talk about it, because that might be too lust. So like, this even attachment to vision, what's the healthy sexuality that we're aiming towards? And I think a place where the porn really comes into this is, um, so I'm single, and obviously dating in like a Christian culture. And one of the biggest problems is if I'm dating someone and we're discussing our own views on sexuality, what we think is healthy, um, a lot of men in my generation, their tastes have been formed by pornography. Yes. So a lot of things that are like considered sexual kinks or things that are more violent, things they're into. And I want to have a vision for sexuality that is imaginative, that's healthy. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a beautiful thing, it's a good thing, not saying it has to be really restricted, but like, what are healthy ways to explore that? Yeah. And I'm caught between wanting to be um, not prudish and like value exploration of that, while not saying, oh yeah, that thing that you saw in porn that you're really into and you really want to try, that's going to be a healthy thing. Yeah. Because it's not, if that's where yeah, that's coming from, then that's going to be destructive. Yeah. Yeah, I think the vision of porn that you get is, is, is dehumanized in the sense of, like, sex is really not about connecting with another person. The other person is just incidental for you to feel good through. And, like, that, that I think, is shaped, I'd imagine, like, a way of understanding sex that is shaped by, by porn that I think for that generation is just sort of what they know. You know, in some ways, I'm not just trying to just be sympathetic, uh, just be sympathetic to them. But uh, you're right; there needs to be better marriages, better articulation of what what healthy human sexuality looks like. More open, more open discussion. There is a good book, uh, kind of on this, uh, by a British psychologist named 
uh, Glenn Harrison. It's called A Better Story. Um, uh, it talks about this some, but in a, in a different, sort of a different context, basically, how we have not told a good story <laughs> about human sexuality. But, um, yeah. I find it kind of as well, same lines of, of how the question you mentioned in the end that, that part of the root problem is a lack of self-value, um, not knowing whether you're loved, whether you're valuable, a huge um, shame problem. Yeah. Um, honestly, like, that, that's huge. When you, when you constantly have to compare yourself to internet images and everybody's perfect little Instagram, you know, filtered yeah. images, and you look at yourself and go, well, it doesn't match because I don't get to filter my entire world, right? Like, um, and so just to, I think you have to start with understanding those root causes and being like, well, it's not just about saying, oh, don't do this. It's not a list of things. It's like all these things we touched on, right? Like truly valuing, uh, hearing. I mean, all this speaks to like, yes, as a father, if you value deeply your daughter, that relationship is one of the things that it is an anchor point. Um, huge. I can't show that enough. Um, open conversations versus having it being taboo and hidden. Huge. Because if you don't talk about it, they will. And there's much more of, the more hidden it is, the more you can't talk about it, well, the more then you don't have resources to be healthy with it. And the alternative is to basically go the other route, which is whatever the internet you know, provide um, and get dark pretty fast. And so, just all, I think that's like where you have to start looking is um, also that I think the third piece is kind of that empathy is like so much of porn is using a person. If you instill in yourself and in others, especially children at a young age, empathy, 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 other people's real stories, how you as a person affect everybody around you whether that's siblings, friends, family, your future spouse, your future kids. Like if you have a bigger vision for who you are and how you act in the world, goes a long way to countering the temptation to be like, hey, it just doesn't matter because I don't matter. Um, if you believe that lie, it's really easy to get sucked in. If you don't, or you have people around you saying, oh, you matter, and what you do matters, it's that much of kind of that armor you're talking about. And I'm not saying like sober, and it's a messy topic and a messy world, but those are the types of things that the Catholic Church has pulled from in order to try to, yeah, come at it. Yeah, Dave? Good luck, sir, by the way. Oh, thanks, Dave. For workshop. But yeah, I agree. We we have two boys who are 12 and 14, so we really struggled with timing and knowing when it's too soon or too late and they've been homeschooled and one of them has just entered public school and so we found some books I wish I knew the names of the author I can't remember now but they are they came out of Wheaton and they wrote these books that were to be read with kids during stages or you know this is what you read with your child who's under five and then this is the next page and um, and some of them are like shoot this feels a little too soon (laughs) you know but they, their big emphasis is a lot on the goodness of, of sex and what it means. What, what does your body mean right now? What's the meaning of, of what's going on with your body? And that's been really helpful. And for them to know, 
not just for what, what to fight against, but what to fight for. Um, and that's been really, really helpful for them. And then stuff too, like I've even noticed with our oldest, we talk about, you know, you're doing this for your future wife, you're going to be with. And, and he brought that up. It's like, I, you know, just wonder what sticks. And then he mentions it on his own, and I'm like, he's getting it. And uh, I found that that's really helpful because you know what the deviation is by what the true thing is, what the good thing is. But it's hard, we don't have a lot of articulation of that. We have what's bad, but we don't just have why is that bad? And even let's end on one note, like this is kind of related, but our son, our youngest is kind of going through puberty, he's just starting to enter it. And you could even see he starts to describe what's happening in his body, and he was feeling like a bit of shame. And you know, it's a moment you could joke about it. But I just felt this urge from God to be like, no, this is good. There's nothing wrong with that. This is normal, this is God making you into a man. And you just saw him like standing in tall. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, going back to what you said, sort of what you said there. I mean, I I have not been around that long, but I feel as though the more I spend time talking with people about sexuality, I find that the biblical vision to be a really sober and fairly realistic account. Like in Genesis, where it talks about um, uh, you know two becoming one. That something happens to you when you give yourself to someone and receive someone in sex. There's some some connection that's very, very, very powerful. Uh, and so many people who are in relationships that probably should have ended sooner, uh, but they're having a hard time because they've given themselves in some way to someone. And even seeing that, like, like, like that power is a good thing. Uh, that, that connection is a good thing, but it can be dangerous. Like if it's misused, like it can lead to a lot of hurt and regret. And just the sort of common story that sex is um, consensual, pleasurable activity between adults just actually doesn't seem to make sense of what I see in the world. It seems like there's there's more going on. And so yeah, you want to. just talk about uh, keeping accountable with this. And it's not situated in like a larger a larger vision of life. And it becomes like the main thing where my 
my the sort of the, the genuineness of my whole spiritual experience really rests on whether or not I've lost it or whether or not I've looked at porn. And I think that can be unhealthy. And I do think sometimes accountability groups, and I'm not anti-accountability group in any way, I do think there can be a way to just deal with the presenting problem without moving into sort of sort of deeper, deeper issues. And that's an issue also with just male culture in North America not wanting to talk about some of these these uh, other other deeper things. But I do think accountability is, is a great thing. I think it's probably time to go. Um, uh, and if not, you should go. But anyway, thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.